we're coming to a very significant section in the book of Mark. And as, as you can see from the text of today, it's one of the longer, one of the longer sermon texts. Um, and there's a number of different things going on that at first glance don't seem to have any connection whatsoever with each other. We have Jesus feeding the 4,000. Then we go to another scene and there's a conflict with the Pharisees. And then there's another scene and there's, there's the disciples and they're just not quite getting it. They're stuck up on bread. What do these th three things have to do with each other? On the surface, maybe not much. But here we come to the midpoint of a few different things. On one, in chapter, with chapter 8, Mark being 16 chapters, we're coming to the midpoint of Mark as a whole. There's about as much ahead of us as there is behind us. And we're going to be discussing well over half of the 8th chapter today. We're at the larger part we're at the midpoint of a larger narrative that begins back in Mark 6, chapter 30, or chapter 6, verse 30, and ends at chapter 8, verse 29. So we're right about in the midpoint of a major, a major thematic section of Mark. And beginning with the conflict of the, with the Pharisees in chapter 8, verse 11, within the context of the book of Mark, this is often considered the midpoint of Jesus' ministry as he turns, begins to turn his attention away from Galilee and toward Judea. As he begins to leave behind Galilee and begin the ever ominous trek toward his own crucifixion. In the first half of Mark, we see a lot of miraculous things, a lot of miracles, a lot of healings. Moving forward, we will see two from this point of Mark onward. We've seen well over a dozen in the first half. In the second half, we see two. But with the decrease in miracles, we see an exponential increase in the amount of teaching. So we're at a significant midpoint in the whole text. Halfway points are often perceived to have some type of preternatural significance. Passing the halfway point means that more of the story is behind you than it is ahead. Most of the race has been run. More of life has been lived than not. Often we hear, it's all downhill from here, as if the second half will somehow be easier than the first, because we've lived, most, we've lived most of it. And oftentimes, in the midpoint of a story, the reader learns some important piece of information that remains hidden to the main characters of the story, and the story becomes as much about the character's ignorance as it is figuring out what's going on. Typically, we have figured out what's going on by the halfway point of a book. We know, you know, we know kind of have an idea of who done it, what done it, how's this going to work out, but the characters haven't quite figured it out yet. 
And sometimes we might find ourselves getting rather irritated with the characters because we figured it out already, why can't they? And certainly in today's passage, there's an air of, they should understand this already. To this point in Mark, Jesus has been establishing his authority. He's been performing great signs and miracles, doing the seemingly impossible. But as we know, with God, all things are possible. We've read, a no- we've read about a number of run-ins with belief and opposition. Moving on from here, with Jesus' authority clearly established, like I had mentioned, we will see a dramatic drop in the number of miracles, but a corresponding increase in the amount of teaching about the kingdom and salvation. Now that Jesus' authority to teach has been established, here's the teaching. And yet, we still get the impression that the disciples don't quite get it. As we come to this midpoint, it is helpful to take a look at the structure of the text that we're examining. For those who may have been particularly eager for today's text and have read ahead and know what's coming, you may have noticed a little bit of, I think I've read this before. And you'd be right. In this text, there's a, cert- there's a parallelism that shows up where what's happened before seems to be happening again in the text. Th- there are differences in details Each section begins with the feeding of a multitude. Well, 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 you know what? We're going to read the text right now before we go into it. I think I may have put the slides a little out of order. Before we move forward, let's read the text. (laughs) So be in Mark 8 through 21. In those days, when again a great crowd had gathered and they had nothing to eat, he, Jesus, called his disciples to him and said to them, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their homes, They will faint on the way, and some of them have come from far away. And his disciples answered him, How can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? And he asked them, How many loaves do you have? They said, Seven. And he directed the crowd to sit down on the ground. And he took the seven loaves, and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to set before the people, and they set them before the crowd. And they had a few small fish, and and having blessed them, he said that these also should be set before them. And they ate and were satisfied, and they took up the broken pieces left over, seven baskets full. And there were about 4,000 people. And he sent them away. 
And immediately he got into the boat with his disciples and went to the district of Dalmanutha. The Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, Why does this generation seek a sign? Truly I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them, got into the boat again, and went to the other side. Now they had forgotten to bring bread, and they had only one loaf with them in the boat. And he cautioned them, saying, Watch out! Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember? When I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? They said to him, Twelve. And the seven for the 4,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, Seven. And he said to them, Do you not yet understand? As I said, for those who may have read ahead on the text, there may be some similarities. It starts out with the feeding of a great multitude. Wait, didn't I read this before? And you're right, you did. We see, we see a parallel. It begins with the feeding of a multitude. They fed the 5,000. Well, now he's feeding 4,000. There's the crossing the sea and, the land, and landing on the other side. And certainly in the first part of it, there was the storm on the sea and the walking on water, far more eventful than what we're told in verse 810 where eh, he just crossed. They got in the boat and crossed. But there's a crossing. Then we move into a conflict with the Pharisees. The first conflict we had was about what's clean and unclean. And remember in that section, Jesus turned everything the Pharisees were taught about clean and unclean completely on its head. Well, now the conflict with the Pharisees is they're demanding a sign. They're testing it. We then move into a conversation about bread with the Syrophoenician woman. Bread shows up with, you know, even the dogs eat the crumbs from the children's table. After Jesus says, it's not right that you should take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Well, then today, at the end of today's section, the disciples have a discussion that they forgot the bread. And Jesus is discussing the leaven of the Pharisees that, as we'll see more, the disciples just aren't getting it. Then we move into a healing, a miracle involving spittle in the laying on of hands. And each section ends with a confession of faith. 
in the first section, the people marveled and said, he has done all things well. In a couple of weeks, we'll hit this, this final section with Peter's great confession when Jesus says, well, who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you are the Christ. What, do, what are we to learn from this, you might ask? Well, first, we see that each section is a great teaching on its own. If we were to take each one of these 12 sections that's in this larger section of Mark, each one would stand on its own as a great miracle or a great teaching of Jesus. Second, the repetition emphasizes that there's some really important stuff in here and we'd best not miss it. It's a sort of, in case you missed it the first time, here it is again the second time. Indeed, this is the case here. We see some deep spiritual truths about the nature of the kingdom of God, faith, and unbelief. A few things that we need to observe here in this text. At first glance, it's easy to skip over the feeding of the 4,000. It's certainly the less famous of the two great feedings. It doesn't get nearly the publicity of the feeding of the 5,000. In fact, when you mention the feeding of the 4,000, some people will even correct you and say, you mean 5,000, right? So it's tempting to rush over this and skip it as just another feeding. But we would miss the deep theological riches about what true faith looks like. Unlike in this episode, unlike in the episode with the 5,000, this section, remember, we're in a section of the text that occurs in decidedly Gentile country. You know, the first feeding happened in Galilee. This is happening in the Decapolis. This is Gentiles. This is likely mostly Gentiles who are here. The fact that the text says that some people came from far away emphasizes this. And as if to drive point the home, to drive home the point that Jesus made in chapter 7, 24 through 30 about the, the children being fed first, but the dogs will be fed, it seems fitting that the second great feeding would happen among the dogs. Though the blessings of the kingdom are available to all peoples and nations, they're only available through the one whose body would be broken. We learn something about what true faith looks like in the feeding of the 4,000. How do we do that, you might say? Well, first, we learn that true faith is persistent. The crowd has gathered and they had nothing to eat because they'd been following Jesus in the wilderness for three days. In the wilderness, this isn't, this isn't they're on a backcountry road somewhere, but there's still some civilization nearby. They're in no man's land. And they'd been following him for three days. They didn't just show up, sounds good, Jesus, we're going to go home now. They're following him for three days. Through the wilderness, this desolate and dangerous place, a place where you were more likely to encounter robbers along the way 
than anything else, let alone the Son of God. We're also told that some had come from very far away. People had come out of their way and themselves endured danger and hardship to seek out Jesus. Some very well may have come from nearby, but some had come from far enough away that Jesus was concerned that, it, that they would faint on their return journey. What happened if you fainted in the wilderness? You die. Some had put themselves in a position of almost certain death to seek out Jesus and to hear him. And they'd been with him for three days when the narrative picks up. Likely they had brought some food and rations with them, but what we can gather by the paucity of bread that was gathered from the 4,000 was that even after running out of sustenance, the people still decided to stick around and listen to Jesus teach. The people were persistent well beyond the point of their safety in order to listen to Jesus speak. When was the last time that you endured almost certain death to seek out Jesus' presence? True faith is persistent. We also see something else about true faith. It leads us to this second characteristic. The people were persistent. They seemingly didn't care for their own safety. Maybe they knew something that even the disciples had failed to grasp, that in the presence of Jesus, we're safe. Our needs will be met. We don't know how, but we've heard the stories. We know that he can provide. In the face of certain death, the people continued to seek out Jesus rather than their own needs. We're told that this moved Jesus to have compassion on the people. Their persistence moved Jesus to compassion, they had no food. They needed to eat because they had put listening to teaching about the kingdom with such priority, they were neglecting their own needs. This moves Jesus to compassion. This harkens back to chapter 6 when Jesus was moved with compassion because they were like sheep without a shepherd. There, they needed teaching. And Jesus meets their need. He teaches them. It's the disciples that interrupted him. Almost as to interrupt Jesus, say, hey, you know they need to eat, right? Jesus, Jesus is interrupted there. But here, Jesus is the one that initiates the, the conversation. Hey, they need to eat. I'm concerned that if they leave, they're going to faint on the way back. And we're in the wilderness. We know what happens if they faint on the way back. a huge contrast between the feeding of the 5,000 and here what we see with the feeding of the four. Here it's Jesus initiated by the, the feeding. There Jesus was moved by their need of a shepherd, their need of a guide to teach them and show them the kingdom. Here he's moved by physical need. They were in such a sorry state. Jesus is concerned for their own safety because they have prioritized listening to teaching about the kingdom over their own basic needs. And this moves Jesus to compassion. 
True faith seeks God first. But this isn't, these aren't the only things. Yes, true faith is persistent. True faith seeks God first. We also see that true faith is honored by Jesus. In connection with what we read about the Syrophoenician woman, we see that true faith is honored by Jesus. In the face of Jesus' compassion, though, we are confronted with the disciples and their practicality again. They acknowledge the situation, but their response is essentially, yeah, but what do you want us to do about it? Jesus says they need to eat, and the disciples are like, we're in the middle of nowhere. What do you want us to do about it? They're in this desolate place. They're not just in the country. They're in no man's land. A place where you are more likely to be eaten as a meal than you were to find a meal. Jesus inquires as to what they have and the disciples respond with their meager supplies. Seven loaves. It's almost as if they were to say, Ah, Jesus, yes, you are ever compassionate, but you're also pretty impractical. We got seven loaves. Unfazed by this lack of resources, Jesus gets down to business. Unbeknownst to the disciples and unbeknownst to the crowd themselves, the crowd is about to experience what Jesus referred to in Matthew 6 when he taught, Therefore, do not be anxious about anything saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear, for the Gentiles seek after these things. And your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all things, all these things will be added to you. We see that true faith seeks God first. We see Jesus about to reward and honor that faith. But before this, Jesus first offers a benediction of thanks to the Father for the bread. He breaks the bread and continues to distribute it to the disciples. There's certainly a Eucharistic symbolism. He was giving thanks. He was breaking the bread. And he was giving it to the disciples. We see that same sequence show up at the Last Supper. He gives thanks. He breaks the bread. He gives it to his disciples. This would certainly not have been known to the disciples at the time. They, weren't even, they were not yet even aware of what Jesus would have to suffer and experience. But to Mark's writers, they would have picked up on this. They would have seen this. The language of the text, and especially the underlying Greek, it gives the picture that as one basket fills, the disciples distribute it And then they come back and get more. And Jesus continues to multiply the bread until all are satisfied. They're passing it out. They go back. Oh, hey, here's more. They go pass it out. Oh, hey, here's more. They go pass it out to abundance. We see later there were seven baskets gathered back up. The truly mundane eating has once again become miraculous. The situation quickly shifts from one of starvation to abundance yet again. And the only thing that changed was that Jesus had compassion in response to the faith of the people. 
and he acted on it. True, true faith is honored by Jesus. The feeding of the 4,000 and the characteristics of true faith, that it's persistent, that it seeks God first, that it's honored by Jesus, then sets up a stark contrast for what comes in the next two sections with the conflict with the Pharisees and then another conversation about bread with the disciples. If the crowd in Gentile country, likely composed mostly of Gentiles, is an example of faith, much like the Syrophoenician was an example of faith, we're now, con we're now confronted with a contrasting example of what unbelief looks like. And here we're confronted with two different types of unbelief. On one hand, we have the Pharisees who are rooted in their opposition to Jesus. They're actively opposed to Jesus and his ministry. On the other hand, we have the unbelief of the disciples. This isn't so much an opposition. They understand that Jesus was sent from God, but they just don't get the significance of that. They've seen the miracles, and they've marveled at them with the rest, but they didn't get the meaning of them. And we'll see even more coming up in the following couple of weeks about what maybe the disciples thought they understood. But this opens up with the great confrontation with the Pharisees. You know, if later on we have the, you know, the great confession, here we have the great confrontation beginning in verse 11. And we see that unbelief seeks conflict. Following the landing, the, the Pharisees arrive. The text states that they begin to argue with him. The word certainly communicates that this was not a friendly encounter. But the concept of argument in English is much, is much different than what the Greek concept of argument is. The word there, suzeteo, is variously translated as three different words depending on which translation you look at. The ESV, the NASB, the CSB, and the New Living translated as argue. The NIV, the King James, translated as questioned. They began to question him. And the New King James, which may actually be a truer translation or a, a more accurate rendering, translates it as dispute. They began to dispute with Jesus. But rather than our, mo our modern concept of argument just being a loud harangue of people yelling e at each other and tossing hostilities back and forth, disputation is actually a form of debate. But it's not really a form of debate that seeks to convert one person or the other to your side. It's a, it's a form where each side presents their particular viewpoint and the other side has a chance to respond. Like I said, the goal of disputation was not so much to convince the other person, but to defend your particular viewpoint and interpretation of Scripture. Now, to be sure, this could often become quite heated. And there are, there are examples 
all throughout history into antiquity of disputes that became quite heated. It's more of a stating of your argument in the form of your thesis, your objection, your authorities. That is, who agrees with you. Making your argument and then replying to the objections is more about trying to peel away the other's followers. I'm going to try to diminish your influence by getting more people to follow me than you. And this could go on for hours. This wasn't a 10, 15 minute, I say my piece, you say your piece, we're all good, who's going to follow whom? This can go on for hours. In fact, there are records of disputations in antiquity and church history, even from times around when this would have been happening, of disputations lasting for days and weeks of people having to break because of holidays, because of meals, and then coming back and picking up where they left off. There is a point in, in every disputation, though, there's a point in which it becomes an exercise in endurance and patience in the hopes of catching your opponent in a fallacy, or worse, catching them in heresy or blasphemy given that they were trying to seek a sign to test him, their argument probably went something like this. And we see, we see bits and pieces of this show up through Mark. They would dispute, Jesus, you don't have the authority to speak for God. Who are you? We're the learned teachers of the law. You're the carpenter's son. Or so you tell everybody. And they, they may voice the objections. They're saying, you know, he'll say, he is, he'll say that he is. He'll point to these miracles. But they, they would appeal to their teachings, you know, their traditions that are passed down. They all agree with us. If you're a prophet sent by God, God gives his approval in some way that lets everyone know you're from God. We have no sign of your approval, Jesus. You can't speak for God. But, prove us wrong. Let us see a sign from heaven that we would know you're from God. The word has the sense, the word to dispute with, it has the sense that while the Pharisees might have initiated the disputation and the conflict, Jesus did engage. We're not told how long this lasted. We're not given what was said back and forth, who said what, how long did this go for. The text doesn't tell us any of that because quite frankly, it's not important. We get to the end with Jesus' final conclusion that it really was futile to engage with him because they weren't really looking for answers. They were trying to trip him up. They were trying to test him. That word to test him, it's important. Shows up, it's shown up previously in Mark. They're not looking for a miracle. They're looking for a sign. Throughout Mark and the other Gospels, the word for miracle literally means a mighty work. That's not the word that's used here. The word that's used here is a sign. Meaning that they're wanting some irrefutable sign from heaven that Jesus is approved by God. 
whether that be a prophet that they believe, saying, yep, this is the man, or God himself opening the heavens and saying, this is my son. Something that's irrefutable as God's approval, he speaks for me. And they're laying out a test for Jesus. But as we saw back in 322, when they claimed that Jesus was in league with the devil himself, no miracle or sign is irrefutable to the person who doesn't believe anyway. To those whose hearts are open, the blind seeing, the lame walking, the lepers being cleansed, the deaf hearing, the dead being raised, those are convincing enough signs that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. For those outside, for those whose hearts are hardened, for those whose eyes are closed, nothing can function as a sign. Because even when, you see this, even when they see the sign themselves, the Pharisees saw the signs just as the disciples did. But what did the Pharisees do? They attributed it to the power of Satan. To the person whose eyes are closed, whose heart is hardened, no sign can function to bring about belief. And their evil intention is brought forward in the, in the phrase, to test him. They were trying to trip him up, to catch him in blasphemy so they could destroy him. Remember, they've been plotting since chapter 3 about how they could kill him. We're told back in chapter 3, verse 6, they were plotting with the Herodians how to get rid of him. Their testing him reveals that they are in partnership with Satan himself, who is the one who tested Jesus at the beginning of his ministry. Give me a sign. Now, Matthew's account goes into much more in depth, but in Mark, we're told the same thing. He was tested, he was tempted. Show us a sign. In response to this, Jesus groans deeply in his spirit. And this is a physical groan with a spiritual cause. It's a sense of irreconcilable enmity and invincible unbelief. This is the only place that this word is used here in the New Testament. The only other place it shows up in the Bible is in Lamentations in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the scriptures. It's the only other place it shows up. And in that context, it's the groaning of the priests at the destruction of Jerusalem and the desolation of the land. And Jesus states, no sign will be given to this generation. What doesn't come out in our English translation is that this is a conditional statement. If you remember from our inductive Bible study a couple weeks ago, we talked about conditional statements. Conditional statements being, if this, then this. If this happens, then this happens. But it's not translated in this way because in the Greek, we're only left with the if statement. The then isn't present. Now, many, many have argued that 
and I, I want to be careful not getting too much into the weeds on this, but I think it's an important part of understanding this. Some have argued that, well, this is, this is a, he, a Hebraic, this is a, a Hebrew curse formulation. We see this show up in the Old Testament. Um, probably one of the places where this shows up is in the book of Ruth, where Naomi tells Ruth to go her way. And Naomi says, I'm not doing it. Where you go, I will go. Your people will be my people. Where, I, where you die, I will die. And may God do worse to me if I ever break this covenant. This, it, that's the wording of this. So it's, some, have trans, some have thought, well, you know what? This is Jesus making a curse, you know, a statement of basically, may God strike me down if a sign is ever given to you. Meaning, no sign is going to be given. And yet there are certain problems with that because we see Hebrew, we see these Hebraisms show up, you know, we see you know, where Jesus commands the, the little girl a couple weeks ago to rise up. Says that in, in Aramaic, and Mark translates it. Says this is what that means. We see later at the crucifixion where Jesus says, Iola, Iola, lama sabachthani. And then Mark, says, Mark translates it for his readers. Because his readers were Greek. They wouldn't have understood the Hebrew. And yet we don't see Mark provide any translation. There are nine places in Mark for anyone that's wondering where Mark translates a Hebrew phrase into the Greek for his readers. Mark doesn't do that here. This would argue that maybe this isn't traditionally what we understood it to be. Maybe, rather, this could be best understood as it's a trailing off due to the strong exasperation of the situation, or it could also be considered a strong affirmation that indeed a sign will be given to this generation, but it's not the sign they're demanding. In the parallel text in Matthew, we see, we see it's recorded as no sign will be given this generation except for the sign of Jonah. Similarly, similarly in Luke. To that ends, well, we then later see Jesus explaining to his disciples the suffering that he will have to go through, this great, this great and ultimate sign. A sign will be given, but I'm not giving it to you and you're not getting it right now. You're trying to test me. You... You will see, but I'm not giving it to you. The Pharisees are in obstinate unbelief. Their unbelief would not be gratified with their sign on their demand. They were not going to believe. They were looking to kill him. A sign would be given to them just not the sign they were demanding. Rather, the ultimate sign of Jesus' identity would be given at the cross, as he would go on to explain later in chapter 8. Unbelief seeks conflict. Unbelief also seeks self first. 
moving on from this episode with the Pharisees and their obstinate unbelief, their, their perpetual conflict that they seek out with Jesus. We transition via boat. We see this happen a lot in Mark. There's a change of scenery. Well, they got on a boat. So we've moved from obstinate opposition to a scene of Jesus with his well-meaning but rather dense disciples. Once in the boat, the disciples become concerned about the fact that they only have one small loaf of bread. Instead of marveling at the great feeding that they just witnessed or wondering about what this sign was that Jesus was referencing, they're focused on not having enough to eat. Although certainly Jesus does not appear to be concerned with this lack of bread in the least. In this section, the lack of spiritual perception of the disciples is brought out, although the, re although the rebuke loses some of its sting when we realize that this story owes its very preservation in recording to the recollections of at least one of the group. Hence, we have not just a condemnation of Jesus or a rebuke of the disciples by Jesus, but we have, a we have a condemnation of the disciples by themselves as they remembered it. Against the backdrop of this lack of bread, Jesus makes the seemingly out-of-place statement, beware the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. Now, Herod could also refer to the Herodians, which is a variant in some texts, which would certainly include the Sadducees. The Sadducees, were in, they were in league with Herod. They owed their very position to Herod. They held the position of the high priests because they had the favor of Herod and were willing to do his bidding. By contrast... The Pharisees, yeah, by contrast with the rigid formula, formalism of the Pharisees, the Herodians and the Sadducees were quite Hellenized. They were often shrewd, self-serving, and worldly. But both were equally dangerous. Whether it was the rigid formalism that would enslave the people or the Machiavellian maneuverings of the Herodians, both would creep in and take over if, you, if not vigilant. So Jesus says, beware the leaven of the, of the Pharisees, end of Her the leaven of Herod. Now we may often think of leaven as a good thing, and anyone who's a baker would certainly agree with that assessment. Have you ever eaten bread that's not risen sufficiently? It's like gnawing on a brick. Leavening is a good thing when we're baking, and yet, but consider leaven. Consider how leaven slowly permeates everything. A bakery often doesn't even need to add yeast into its bread because there's so much yeast everywhere, it gets into everything. All they have to do is add in water to the, uh, water to the flour and it rises because there's so much yeast. What does yeast do? Yeast decays. How does the yeast rise? It slowly destroys the dough that it's in. We benefit from it. 
We benefit from its destruction because the yeast, it rises and we have soft, fluffy bread that we can eat. But what yeast does, it decays, it ferments, and it rots. While we take advantage of its fermentation, fundamentally, yeast corrupts and it destroys. And this certainly makes sense given Jesus' recent warning and run-ins with the Pharisees. In chapter 2, verse 7, they accuse Jesus of blaspheming for forgiving the paralytic sins. In 2.24, they get on Jesus because he and the disciples aren't following their rules about the Sabbath. In 3.6, they're conspiring with the Herodians to kill Jesus because he's not following their burdensome rules. In their hardness of heart, that is, their determined opposition, rather than praising God for the miracle, they conspire to kill the miracle doer. In 322, their opposition is on full display by claiming that Jesus is in league with Satan himself. In chapter 6, we see Herod becoming concerned because of Jesus' popularity. Most recently, or more recently in chapter 7, we see Jesus turn everything that the Pharisees taught on their head about clean and unclean upside down. And finally, in 8.11, we see the Pharisees themselves in league with Satan demanding a sign to test Jesus. Their belief was already firmly rooted. To an unbelieving generation, no sign would be definite enough. What's the leaven of the Pharisees in Herod? It's unbelief. It's worldliness. It's focusing on the things of men and not of God. Wow, what a, great, what a great warning. Did the disciples get it? No. They go right back to talking about the fact that they have no bread. Jesus gives them this great warning, this, this warning, beware of the Pharisees, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and of Herod. Don't let it creep in don't let it take over. Don't let it destroy. What do the disciples do? They go right back to talking about bread. And the text indicate, the structure of the text indicates that they interpreted Jesus' statement about the leaven as a rebuke for, forget, for forgetting the bread. Jesus gives this warning about worldly and legalism, and their response is essentially, it's because we forgot the bread, isn't it? And later in chapter 8, we see Jesus rebuke Peter with what is a succinct summary of the disciples' heart. Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Unbelief seeks self first. In response to the disciples' seeming dismissal of his warning... Jesus rebukes the disciples with a series of eight questions. He opens up with a series of four rhetorical questions in rapid succession. Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? Having ears, do you not hear? He's essentially stating, I'm not talking about bread. Why are you talking about bread? 
I'm not. Haven't you been listening to anything I've been saying? The questions are rhetorical, of course. The obvious and expected answer to each one of these questions is yes. Yes, I don't perceive or understand. Yes, my heart, has been, my heart is hardened. Yes, I have eyes and I don't see. Yes, I have ears and I don't hear. Of course they don't see the spiritual truth of the kingdom of God that Jesus is teaching them because they're focused on their temporal needs. They're focused on the food in their belly. Despite being with the one who has just miraculously fed massive crowds with next to nothing, they're worried about starving. They had just watched Jesus restore a multitude who was on the brink of death after following him for three days in the wilderness, and they're worried about not having some bread to last them a few hours while they cross the sea. As if they're going to die if they miss a meal. They just completely forgot about what they just witnessed. Then Jesus goes into another series of questions. And do you not remember when I broke the loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets were left over? And the seven for the 4,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? Now Jesus confronts them with a series of questions to which he expects an answer. Maybe the disciples forgot. It wasn't that long ago, but maybe the wilderness got to them. So he asks them if they remember. And you know what? They did. When he asked them about the 5,000 and the 4,000, they didn't respond with, what are you talking about? Rather, they answered him. We got 12 baskets. We got seven baskets. They remembered. They certainly missed the spiritual truths of what Jesus was teaching them. But Jesus wasn't even asking them about that. He was asking them if they remembered that he was able to feed people. They do, and yet they're still concerned about having something to eat. At this point, there's the obligatory Tolkien reference. You know, they're like a hobbit that can't get a second breakfast. They've eaten already, and they're going to eat again shortly, but they want to eat right now. They're so focused on the things of man, they can't see the things of God. And the final question, and maybe the most damning of the questions... Do you not yet understand? Of course they don't understand. They continue to follow him. They don't oppose them. They responded to his call, as we saw at the very beginning when he was calling his disciples. But they don't understand the significance of any of it. They don't yet have faith that Jesus is who he is. And we're told faith is the means by which we see God. We don't see God and then believe. Rightly speaking, that's not faith. That's a logical conclusion. We're told in Hebrews that faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. We have faith and then we see. Because of their lack of faith, the disciples did not yet have eyes to see or ears to hear. Their eyes were still blind and their ears were still deaf to the kingdom of God. So they did not understand. Unbelief is not honored by Jesus. If this were the end of the story, it would be an absolute tragedy. 
that despite everything, the disciples didn't get it and instead were left in their unbelief. Fortunately, we have the remainder of the text of Mark to tell us what happened next. That somewhere between verse 21 and 29, something happened. It began to click a little more for the disciples. Clearly, they, especially Peter, did not completely get it. We have Peter's confession, you are the Christ. And we'll see they didn't completely get it, but they got it a little bit more. But moments later, Jesus rebukes Peter. But even then, that's not the end of the story for these disciples. Again, if that were the end of the story, if Jesus' rebuke of the disciples, get behind me, or rebuke of Peter in particular, get behind me for you're focused on the th- you're not focused on the things of God, if that were the end, that would be a tragedy. Fortunately, it's not the end. Approximately 10 years later, in, in Acts 12, we're told that James, the son of Zebedee, one of the disciples, would be executed by Herod rather than renounce Jesus. For the fates of the rest of the disciples, we have to turn to the early histories. And while the accounts vary, all are consistent that the only disciple to die a natural death was John in exile. The rest of the disciples would die the death of a martyr. The men who were so blinded by their own selfish considerations that they could not see the kingdom of God right in front of them would eventually all lay down their life for the gospel. We should take heart in this. At the same time, Jesus gives us a warning in the text. It's a warning against worldliness and unbelief. We must be on guard as both individuals and as a church. Leaven is insidious. It looks insignificant at first for anyone who's ever baked bread and used yeast. Yeast is small. It looks insignificant. That little bit's not going to do a thing. It looks so insignificant that we may be tempted to ignore it. But in our ignoring it, it takes root. It begins to decay and rot whatever it touches. Eventually it takes over and the thing that it has infected, it, it takes over. And it takes over the thing that it's infected. Before we know it, it has completely distorted and ruined the thing that it has infected. How many times have we seen churches that teach a false gospel and tolerate that what scripture says is intolerable? Do you think that that happened overnight? Did the leadership just wake up one morning and decide to completely go off the rails? No. It was little compromises for the sake of a false sense of unity and not offending anyone. It was the little compromises for the sake of tolerance. It was overlooking the small stuff. It was through the tolerance of the seemingly insignificant. How many times have we done this in our own lives? 
On the other hand, how many times have we seen a church or a person become so legalistic that the love and compassion of Christ for the lost and suffering is nowhere to be found? Adherence to the law and regulation has become their God. They preach a works-based salvation that is virtually unobtainable, and their followers live not virtually unobtainable, it is absolutely unobtainable. And their followers live in constant fear of eternal damnation. As Paul writes in 1 Corinthians, we must purge the old leaven. We have the revealed word of God, which is sufficient for our teaching and our reproof to keep us from both legalism and worldliness. And ultimately, unbelief. But we must pray for eyes to see and ears to hear. As the writer of Hebrews states, without faith it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Without faith, no amount of signs or miracles will convince us otherwise. Without faith, we lose sight of the things of God and like the disciples, we will become consumed by the things of this world. And we see the effect of becoming consumed by the things of this world. Paul wrote of this in his letter to the Galatians in chapter 5, that what are the things of this world? Before he talks about the fruits of the Spirit, and probably most of us can rattle off what the fruits of the Spirit are. But before he talks about the fruits of the flesh, Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. We live in a world overrun by these things. But there's good news, brothers and sisters. We have been given the solution God has preserved his word for us and written on these pages are truth. The only solution for a world that is consumed by its own cares is the gospel of Jesus Christ. The only solution for a world blinded by sin is the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The only solution for a world deaf to the word is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the only solution for a world that is dead in its sin is the gospel of Jesus Christ. In closing, I want to read a passage from 1 Timothy chapter 4. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. 
Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Let us pray. Father, as we're confronted by faith and unbelief today, and the warnings of unbelief, that it takes over everything. We're warned, be on guard. Father, I pray that we would be on guard, that each one of us individually, as families, as a church, would be on guard. That we would teach your word. I pray, Father, that we would have eyes to see and ears to hear, that we would have faith so that we could see you, that we can see the kingdom. And that we would take that, that we would go forth with the gospel as a light into the lost and dark places. Father, I pray for faith. In Jesus' name, amen.